Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, and I'm Craig Shapiro. We've got a great show for you today. When he was six years old, he appeared in Sports Illustrated. By nine, his arch rival was Michael Chang. As a pro, he got way inside the top 40 and may have been the straw that broke Yvonne Lendl's back. We're talking to my good friend, a guy full of fantastic stories and deep insight, Chuck Adams. Chucky's going to tell us about palling around with John McEnroe, the accommodations in Tashkent, Uzbekistan in the 90s, and how he married a player he was coaching. We met up with Chucky at his villa in Malibu. This is Chuck Adams, everybody. He is uh, former world number 30. Three. Uh, sorry? 33. 33. Former world 33. He owns almost as many buildings in LA as his ranking. Chucky is my most successful friend that never went to high school, college, nothing. Well, I didn't graduate, I didn't graduate junior high. Most people don't know that. After the eighth grade, I stopped going. Most people think I was a high school dropout like all the other tennis players at that time, like Sampras, Chang, Agassi. Courier went to school. But I actually didn't finish junior high. To keep things moving and hit a wide variety of issues and stories, we've been implementing a five-segment format that we call the best of five. For our first set, we call this our off-the-court report. Chucky Adams is one of the great characters around. He married a girl he was coaching, Ashley Harkleroad, who's also been on our show. And he uh, is the Malibu practice partner of John McEnroe. If you ever go to the Malibu Racquet Club, which has a public, it's a private club, but it has a public restaurant. If you catch the right day, you can see Chuck and Johnny Mac going toe to toe and it's very, very fun to watch. Well, yeah, and it's a thrill for me, right? And he, he, he I'm losing more steps than he has. He's approaching 60 years old, and it's like I, he beats me most of the time. He still is playing good tennis. Yeah, that's, he, that's, that's actually BS. He's not feeding you most of the time. Probably. Yeah, he he does. He's still got, and he can beat me up the mountain cycling. Could have been a professional cyclist, I believe, as well. Chucky is close friends with Johnny Mac. How did that happen? When I was uh, 17 years old, I was watching the U.S. Open, and he, he had lost to Mark Woodford, I think, in the third or fourth round. I was watching on TV from uh, my girlfriend's house at the time in Miami. And all of a sudden, the phone rang, and my coach said, hey, come back home you know, as soon as possible, I'm gonna start coaching John McEnroe again. I guess he had a little stint with him before. And next thing you know, we started doing, you know, practicing every day he was here in town, two-on-ones and, you know. So you're from Southern California. Yeah, so I'm from Pacific Palisades, which is... Uh, yeah, you're from like an, you're from basically the suburbs of LA. You're an right. LA player. Right, an LA and, player. And Johnny Mack, longtime Malibu resident, correct? Right. He's been coming out here, I think, since the late 80s, for sure, mid-80s. Since and, he was married to Tatum, I think. Right, exactly. And so, uh, you know, I remember, you know, going to his house the first time in Malibu and picking him up. He was always, like, you know, pretty on time, running out the door, and we went and, you know, hopped a fence in the Malibu colony and played a couple sets. And um, he was always very intense. It didn't matter whether the balls were new or old, the court was good or bad. It was the same John McEnroe. John's probably 58. You and I are 46. Um, 
and you guys are you guys are long friends. I mean, it's kind of a neat thing. I mean, he's literally there's not many people in the world who don't know who he is. He is one of the most famous people in the world, and very few people get as close to him as you do. You know, I've had the opportunity to speak with him many times. I've, I've been yelled at by him actually. But um, what can you tell us about him that maybe we don't know? Well, I think he's he's very generous to his close friends and, and family, and um, he's very hardworking. We after sometimes we practice. I say, so what are you up to? When you how long are you around for? When are you leaving? And he said, oh, I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm going to Dusseldorf for two days, and then London for two more days, and then I'm gonna, you know, go here, go there. You know, six kids. I'm like, God, this guy he works so hard. He's, people don't realize what a hard worker he is. He loves to make the cash. <laughs> he's been very successful. He's been, you know, I, he sort of mentored me with a little bit with Malibu Beachfront. Um, for, and Chucky, you are a real estate person, correct? You are a you, you you're like a you're like a, not a slumlord, but you're a landlord. Yeah, I mean, I have uh, apartment buildings, office buildings, and stuff that I try and manage, and and you know that pays the bills. You have an interesting story. When you finished tennis. You bought a building, isn't that right? I, I basically, I left the sport with a million dollars, and and I took that money, I gave it all to a uh, guy I knew, a well-known investor around who started a hedge fund, and and he ended up doing really well, and I took those profits to buy apartment buildings to diversify. And then it just, I ended up doing, you know, pretty well at it, and I enjoy it. Uh, moving on to our second set, we call this the On the Court Report. Um, okay. You know, you might not be very good at this because um, you're a very reluctant tennis watcher <laughs> and a, you play very little tennis, to be honest with you. I mean, Chucky shows up and really one of the only people he even practices with is his wife. Or, and that's occasionally, or John McEnroe. <laughs> well, the kids now, the kids. And the kids are playing. But, Chucky, what do you say about men's pro tennis right now? Well, we thought, you know, during the American tennis era of Agassi, Courier, Sampras, Chang, you know, we had 15 guys in the top 100, four or five in the top 10 at all times. When you were 30, who was in the top 100? Oh, uh, when I was 30 in the world, it was all those guys. It was Agassi, Chang, Sampras, Courier, even Malvi Washington was in there. Todd Martin. What about John Stark? Jonathan Stark and those guys did great Alex. doubles. Alex O'Brien was around. I mean, when you're 30 in the world, you are still 12 in the country. <laughs> so I actually, I, um, I got invited to play Davis Cup for Israel with Amos Mansdorf at the time because I knew I was never going to make the team and my mother's Jewish and I thought, hell, this is my only chance to play Davis Cup. Did you play Davis Cup for Israel? I ended up t tearing my arm, but with the, with the paperwork was being put together. It was a kind of a verbal commitment of let's get this going for the next season. I ended up tearing my arm, but that would have been a great honor too. Finish what you were saying. I mean, you thought that that was going to be the greatest era of tennis. Right. We thought that was the greatest sort of American era for sure. The rivalries, the Sampras, Chang, Agassi, all those great players. But recently, I think these careers are lasting longer because of injury prevention uh, training. We just beat ourselves in the ground, threw up in the trash can, and kept running on the treadmill. These guys are pulling, stretching their ligaments and arms. It's a totally different, it's a medicine to it now. So their careers are lasting a lot longer, which is creating these great rivalries. I mean, if Federer quit eight years ago, how much would we have missed him? Are you hearing anything interesting about anybody coaching anybody? You know, Lendl's with Zverev. Have you, has, has Mac told you anything 
interesting about Curios. When I hear McEnroe talk about Curios, they seem to have a lot of intimate conversations. And I feel like he hasn't told me this, but I feel like the subject has been breached about John helping him. But at the same time, I, at the same time, John's very busy. It comes with some terms. And so he well, John wants to get paid in full. Right. And he's in Kyrgios is an interesting player, but I mean, to be a great player, you have to win weekend and week out. And he's really not doing that. I think if John coached him, that would be incredible. That would be super exciting for the game. Anything that tennis can do with these legends being involved in coaching like Lendl's doing, I think is exciting. In your opinion of Labor Cup, do you think it's a cool thing? I think it's a great thing. John said when it was being put together, he was really excited about hanging out with Borg. And 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 I think when I watched it, I noticed John really like being into it and really playing into the crowd and everything. I thought Borg was maybe much more subdued, kind of like their old playing days. I think he's shy, like like Ashley. Yeah, so shy. <laughs> There's a certain group of uh, tennis players that are shy and some that aren't. What about the format? What about the whole thing? I think it's a great thing because, it, like in basketball, we have the all-star game. This is kind of the all-star tennis where the Federer and, and Nadal play together, and you get to see that, and you know, it's it, it's adding some excitement, definitely. Chucky, why do you think these new guys can't win seven matches in, in you know, best of five tennis in, 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 in two weeks? Well, that's a good question. These older guys definitely have the fitness level, and I really hope it's all being done above board, that's for sure. Um, because sometimes I'm just watching these matches and I'm not seeing one guy get tired after hit, running side to side 30, 40 times. So I hope it's all above board. Do you know something we don't? No, I'm not involved in the game or know something, but I've cycled with guys around who try stuff and all of a sudden they're up the mountain, lickety split. And I just hope that the sport is clean because I feel like some of it's miraculous. It's hard to believe the level. I just when the Samp fitness level. When Sampras played, you saw him throw up, right? When he played. When Chang played, you saw him, you know, cramping and beating Lendl in heroics as a teenager and stuff like that. And nowadays, I mean, these guys are going five sets, five hours, and ripping their shirt off, throwing it in the crowd, hitting 12 balls of stands, giving 10 interviews, and then coming out the next day and doing the same thing. And then practicing at nine in the morning and then going <laughs> back to play. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to be controversial, but at the same time, it seems miraculous. Moving on to our third set. Chucky, you know, you have one of the more interesting stories that we, we sort of talked about a little bit, right? You you didn't go to school. You were groomed to be a pro tennis player. Tell, don't you tell us a little about that. Yeah, my, my, my father ra raised me to be a professional athlete. Started with football, basketball, and baseball as a four-year-old. By the time I was six years old, I was in Sports Illustrated for basketball. I scored 48 points in 18 minutes and faces in the crowd. It was a YMCA record. And before kindergarten, I would take batting practice when it was baseball season, before kindergarten. And what was, and, and, and like, do you hate your father? Or? No, no, we had a great time doing it. He made it really fun. He bribed me. You know, I'd shoot baskets at the park in, in the night. I remember with his lights on in his Cadillac. And he'd give me a dollar if I made a short shot and a mid-range shot. 
So he, he and, then, and then tennis. And then all of a sudden, they entered me in summer school, got knocked out, and I started playing tennis at the park. And after three, four months in tennis, I decided te I wanted to be a professional tennis player. Started training from then on. And uh, in the 10 and unders, I probably won 22, 23 USTA uh, tournaments, Southern California tournaments. I play every weekend a tournament. Did you have like a big rival down here? Yeah, I mean, the first time I played Michael Chang, I was nine and he was eight, and I lost to him seven five in the third in Studio City in the summer. It was probably about 125 on the court. And I remember he just didn't miss. He hit the ball high in the sun, and he didn't miss. And, you know, I played him throughout my junior tennis at different periods of time. And uh, the one time that sticks out the most is in the 18 and under sectionals. I'm 16, he's 15, I'm up 5-2 in the third. He beats me, wins the sectionals, wins Kalamazoo, and then becomes the youngest ever to win a match at the U.S. Open, all in the span of 90 days. So in tennis, someone can shoot to the moon. And all these guys I grew up with, Sampras, him, and... Chang and seeing Agassi and all these, they just shot to the moon. All of a sudden, like 90 days, it, was, it went from a junior tennis player to a pro in 90 days. All 90 days. Them, all of them, maybe Agassi less. You never left town to go to Boletari or Jose Higueras. How'd you get so good? My dad fed me a lot of balls. There were maybe 75 balls in the basket. He'd feed me about a dozen hoppers, so almost a 1,000 balls a day, and he'd line me up with practice matches every day. You hit enough balls, even with my dad who didn't know those sports, he was a great athlete in the traditional sports, it didn't matter. You don't have to mess with your grips too much. As long as your fundamentals are basic, go hit a million balls and then come back. We, we were texting uh, a few months ago after Charlie saw the Borg McEnroe movie, and I told you, we got to turn him pro. We got about 10 years, and you said a million balls. Yeah. Is that the recipe? That's for my son, yeah. He actually plays high-level basketball and soccer, and, and over this last summer, he took up tennis when we sent him away to summer camp back east. They had a tennis portion, and some counselor taught him how to serve, and he comes home, and he sort of likes tennis. So for about the last three months, he's pretty good. His backhand sort of looks like Agassi. He's got some volleys and some touch. It's it's. Driving me crazy, really. It's encouraging? Or it's I rather, I like going to the soccer and basketball games more personally. <laughs> <laughs> but the tennis just hits too close to some nervous spot in my heart. What was the first ATP tour tournament you played? The first one was the LA tournament. I got wild card in the quali. Oh, sorry, my, what year? How old? That, I was like 17, so that was in 88. I played Michael Cura's first round. He was like number one or two at UCLA. He was a man. And I show up at 17, maybe I was 16 even. And I lost to him in qualies. First round, like six, two, seven, five, super nervous. But I'm like, geez, I got him to seven, five. I played him the next week in a challenger and I, I beat him in qualies. And I'm like, God, maybe I can do this a little bit. Of course, by that time, Chang and Sampras were already top 100 in the world. Um, and then what? Did you get an agent? Did you? No, no, I wasn't really like, I was just sort of in the background in the, a little bit of the shadow of that, that first tier group. You know, I had to win Kalamazoo, which I ended up doing when I was 18. Kalamazoo, the, the, the national American hardcore championships, a lot of prestige there. Yeah. When they I was, call that the zoo. It was. First year of 18s I played and I was number one seed. And I started feeling the pressure. There were some rumblings and in, in my, 
I think my dad came to the match and I'm rooming with Tommy Ho. Next thing you know, I play him in the quarterfinals. He beats me and becomes the youngest ever to win Kalamazoo 18 and under. Tommy Ho had an exceptional junior career and he never really quite panned out in the pros. The pros, the traveling, I would stay with him sometimes, the nerves, the whole scene, leaving home. I liked to, I was more independent. He, and I was a couple years older, but he later on got to top 100. Now I understand his kid's really good. Tommy Ho's got a good kid. Yeah, he's like tall and huge serve. Interesting. Um, but so, so, where, so where did your ranking jump? I mean, how do you go from 800 in the world to top 100? When I lost to Tommy Ho, I decided to continue to play satellites and challengers and keep my ranking was always around in the mid 300s as a junior. And then I needed to win Kalamazoo to get the kind of attention to prove that I could make it and to get some contracts. You know, for me, if I could make 100 grand a, a year off the court, with some agents, clothes, shoes, and that was huge. Can you make that? Yeah, close to that with, you know, they threw me some exhibitions, and by the end of the day, they were, they were I was able to make, which is a, is a 18-year-old's a decent living. That's incredible. I, I mean, mean, listen, you play pro tennis, you're following the sun, you're, ma you're making money to live. Yeah, and you realize the further you go in the tournament, the prettier the girls are who are checking you out, right? I mean, by the time you make it to the finals, all of a sudden it's like, this is great. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. How would you describe yourself as a player to someone who had never seen you play? As a player, my strategy was a lot of times was to, if, if the player was gonna beat me, he was gonna suffer. He was gonna do a lot of running. I was gonna make a lot of balls, no matter what the conditions were. And so a lot of times my reputation on the tour was like, oh man, this guy's a pain in the butt to play. We're in Osaka, Japan. It's snowing out. We're on outdoors in the hard courts. It's 40 degrees. And this guy's just making these little shots and grinding with making it really physically hard on me men and mentally. And some guys would just throw in the towel, believe it or not. A lot of guys didn't compete that well. And you, and you had a big forehand. And I had a big forehand and a big first serve. So what I would try and do is hit a big serve, and then the first ball I'd run around wherever it was and try and tag the forehand as hard as I could to one corner or the other, wherever they went. I put them on defense on the first shot. Um, who owned you? Who was the player that gave you the most trouble? Brad Gilbert, I, I lost to him, I think, at least two or three times. I just didn't feel I could beat him. The way the rally was, he'd hit short ball to me on purpose and bait me to come to net and then pass me. So it was like this strategy, I couldn't stop. I couldn't prevent him from hitting it short and I couldn't hit any better of an approach shot and I really couldn't volley any better. So he was playing a sport that I couldn't play. That, that was odd. Is there like a is there a day in your life or is there a match that's like the best tennis you ever played? Do you have a one do you have a one moment? Probably the second or third round of the US Open, I beat Jonas B. Svensson, who at the time was top 20 in the world. He was 17 in the world, and he was a backboard. He never missed. And I think I lost the first set 6-1, and then I beat him 1-1-1. One, one, and, one. and I didn't miss a shot for two hours. And uh, I was very shocked at my, the level of play I could maintain in three out of five, you know. And that year I got to the fourth round, but that was a shocking, I shocked myself. Um, Chucky, um, talk about your best year in pro tennis. 1994 probably was my best year when I, I got to the finals of, uh, I went on a good tear. I, I beat Lendl in Schenectady, Yvonne Lendl, before the U.S. Open. And uh, that week I also beat, you know, a couple other good top 
50 players. And then I and then I saw Lendl at the US Open the next week. He quit his third round match and he announced kind of his retirement. Remember that? Yeah, I do. At the US Open. And and I and I saw him in the locker room in passing. I'm like, oh man. He used to call me psycho because I wore a headband with a goatee sometimes. And I, I go, I go, you can't beat me, so now you gotta quit tennis, right? It's over, right? Your worst loss ever. A half hour later, I see him at the toll booth. We were heading in the same direction. He lived in Connecticut and I was going, you know, outside the city where I'd stay with my relatives. And my coach goes, give him a BA, give him a BA, like take down my pants and put it against the window. Yvonne Lendl, he just announced his retirement. I said, no, I don't think I can do it, but may maybe I can do it. You mooned him. Yeah, I mooned him. <laughs> I mean, You mooned Lendl after you beat him. Because I beat him, he retires. <laughs> crying, and then goes home back to Connecticut to his palace and gets mooned by the guy that put him into retirement, I mean. Um, but, that, but also, did you win Tashkent that year? I won Tashkent that year, which was on red clay, and we played at like 5 p.m. every night because it was 125 degrees out in the desert. Tashkent, Uzbekistan, Chucky's only tournament win, but I mean, you no, won. No, I won, I won Seoul, Korea. I take that back, Chucky won two tournaments on the pro tour. <laughs> Uh, who, who did you beat to win Tashkent? I beat Philippe de Wolf in the final, who got to the quarterfinals of the French Open. And then um, what did you win for winning Tashkent? Ab uh, above the table or beneath the table? <laughs> I think the prize money, I think the prize money was about 25 grand. And then they gave me like a nice little suitcase for coming. Really? Oh, you got an <laughs> yeah. appearance fee? Yeah, I got an appearance fee. It was like 5000 to show up, I think, and 5000 if I made it to the course. So I came out of there with about, you know, 30-some-odd thousand. Not and bad. And how was Uzbekistan? It was amazing. It was just really hot. I remember... By the time the finals came, I couldn't sleep that night. I, I had insomnia because the room was, there were like roaches in the room and I couldn't sleep. So I went to the courts on the very first bus, 6 a.m., and tried to sleep in the back back office. Finally slept maybe an hour and then won the tournament. Like, <laughs> it was incredible. When we got back to England on the next flight, I went to the hotel room and I had air conditioning. I thought I was at the Four Seasons. Now, um, it was 94 Seoul as well? Did no, that was before. 94, I got, uh, let's see, I got to the, I think I got to the fourth round of the U.S. Open. That was a thrill. I lost to Volkov in the, in the round of 16. Alexander Volkov yeah. was a very good player, Lefty, I didn't like him. He was too quick. And then I lost to him in the finals of Moscow. You finaled Moscow. Yeah. Those are good results, yeah. Chucky. I beat Todd Martin and Mark Rose. So I was good. I could come up with a win once in a while, but to string it all together was tough. Well, you got hurt. Yeah. I mean, you had like almost what, what I think in pro tennis we would describe as a catastrophic injury, yeah, I, right? You yeah, basically, basically blew your shoulder out. Yeah, I basically tore my shoulder, kind of developed a little bit of a syndrome. I was taking pain pills for about a year before I finally had surgery. And, you know, I think I remember McEnroe used to tell me that if you don't play without pain, you're never going to play. He kind of like, got in your ear he in a kinda, bad way. Well, he was like very much saying that, you know, you got to tough through it. And he had amazing tissue. And so he would say, hey, you know, you got to just keep going and, and, you know, don't stop. 
you know, I don't think people realize what a animal Mac what Mac is. He is an unbelievable endurance athlete. Oh yeah, I mean, people don't realize when he was supposedly not practicing and not really training at the time when I was 17, 18, he would do two on ones, play a couple sets. He'd practice for two, two and a half hours in the morning. And then he'd, he said, here's this new thing I, I got at my house here. It's called a Versa Climber. And I went on, he's like, try it. I went on for like two minutes and I was like huffing and puffing. That's like, the thing that, you know, Ivan Drago uses in Rocky Four, I think, the, the Versa Climber. Right. If you don't know what it is, look it up. I can't quite describe it. It kind of has made a comeback recently. But how so, long did Mac, how so long So he would do it about 45 minutes to an hour. Nonstop. Yeah. And I could do, and I when I started training with it and seeing it at the gym and doing it with him, I got up as a teenager to like a ha where I could do it for a half hour. But he was going 45 minutes to an hour straight. John McEnroe, way better athlete than anyone give him credit for. Way better, unbelievable. And he was a great basketball player. On a rainy day, we'd go to Sports Club LA. He, we'd play basketball. He'd inevitably get into a fight with some guy on the other team, and. Uh, and he was a great basketball player. And he played soccer. The year he got to semifinals of Wimbledon, he was still on the soccer team for his high school. So, Chucky, um, you got hurt. And and did, did you, you had an insurance policy on your shoulder? That's the story everyone tells, that you had like a Sotheby's policy or like Lloyd's of London policy on your shoulder, that your father had insured your shoulder. I, I insured my shoulder because they used to go around, insure your body, because they used to go around and solicit business at tennis tournaments. So everyone had an insurance policy if you had any earnings at all. Wait, explain that. So if you were making like three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, they would, you know, make a policy for three times your estimated earnings. Hold on a second. You're telling that insurance salesmen would be hovering around the players' lounges selling acc uh, accident insurance. Exactly, career-ending insurance. Essentially, it costs you maybe like you know, two, three, four thousand dollars a year. And you had that. I had that, yeah. You kind of had to once I started making a living. You know, I was helping out the family, my parents. I was helping out people financially, you know, keeping my family afloat and make, you know, through some different times. And yeah, I had to like, I had to be a businessman at um, 18 years old. And so did you cash that insurance policy when you when you blew your shoulder? So then when I, they paid me out over five years. But you said that basically... You, we talked and you had said that you hurt your shoulder, you got a surgery, and they, they, they fucked up the surgery. It was a bad surgery. They ended up shaving down the bone to make more room and it ended up not allowing the shoulder to, 20 years later it came out that was a bad surgery. And you lost velocity on your serve. Yeah, I lost basically 10, 12% velocity on my serve. And that's the difference of being, you know, top 50 or 220 was 10% on your serve. 10 miles an hour. Yeah, basically 10 miles an hour in your surgery. 10, 15 miles an hour. Yeah, you're done in men's tennis. In women's tennis, some of them can spin it in and get away with it, you know, if they're out on a bad day. But the men's game, they're just too much power. So then what? So then I came back. I played two years with a kind of a bum shoulder. And then I decided I wanted to start playing golf on the mini tour. I was pretty good at golf when I'd hurt my shoulder. By the way, Chucky's a scratch golfer. He's not a, just a good golfer. He is an awesome, awesome golfer. You know, every ball he strikes is just clean. And that's the reason, because he's a savant. And he, he, he went to try to play pro golf. 
No, I tried that, and I caddied for a guy who made it on the Nike tour. I made it to the Hooters tour. These are all minor league tours, but yeah. you've got to be a plus. You have to have a plus yeah. handicap. Yeah. Well, so you were a plus six? I got, I finished um, fifth in the Southern Cal State Open, a pro event, 100,000 on turn. I shot nine, oh, nine under for three days, and I came in fifth. That's how good the golfers are. A lot of respect for golfers, anyone who thinks that the ball's not moving and it's not a sport. Go try and hit the golf it's ball. It's so hard. <laughs> but but you, you found yourself back playing or coaching. Yeah, then Justin Gimmelstab asked me out of the blue one day to hit, and I wasn't around the tennis at all. I was out of the tennis scene. So I went to hit with him. I'm like, you're six foot six. Why are you standing 10 feet behind the baseline? I'm like beating you, and I'm like a golfer. And so... <laughs> We formed a little relationship there. And next thing you know, he went from, you know, 180 in the world to, you know, 90 in the world. You had a good jump, and then you ended up with Marissa Ir Irwin? Yeah, then I traveled with Marissa Irwin for th about three years, and she was hovering around 120, 30 in the world and got her in the 50s. And I really did a lot of my coaching through fitness first if you're not fit you know you can't even talk about getting better so in most of these players who are doing poorly for whatever reason aren't fit whether it's an injury or you know they're not focused on it and in tennis if you're not fit you're dead so a lot of my success in coaching came from getting the players fit helping with some strategy that i learned from McEnroe and all the great coaching i've had and next thing you know i mean they, they all did pretty well and became self-sufficient and then you met your wife right i was done with marissa she retired and then i decided to coach team tennis in new york and next thing you know ashley was on the team ashley harkle road chucky's uh now wife Chucky, what's your opinion of coaches dating their their players? Well, I think for one, it, it can be inevitable because you're spending so much time together. And to really coach the girls, it requires a lot of talks. They like to talk a lot. It's not like the men's tour where you're like, you don't really say too much to your coach. You play backgammon and, you know, have dinner and that's it. On the women's tour, you really got to dig into their psyche and what makes them happy and figure it out. So when did you kind of make your move? Um, like, did you, like, take her for an ice cream or did you take her to, like, well, like, like how, did, how did that work out? No, I think that we, we had a lot of success together on the court. And when you have success on the court, sometimes that can lead to romance off the court because, you know, it's like you're being a team. And so she came to LA for the tournament um, and needed a place to stay. And she stayed at a place that I had on the beach in Malibu with her dad. And Chucky, his old house is right on PCH. It was one of these small houses almost on stilts. The water goes right under the house. Right. It's one of these unique places in the world, to be honest with you. That's, that's funny, yeah, it's like a boat. So she had a week off in between and we started practicing at Pepperdine. And I think we just sort of realized we had an attraction for one another. I mean, I thought she was the best looking girl I'd ever seen, you know, she was like. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people probably think that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, 
And, and, and she's a great player. Yeah, and she was gritty. She was like a female Jimmy Connors. She, her footwork was like Connors, her intensity. And so I got her to hit the backhand down the line and serve a little better. And she got herself to, you know, top 50 in the world. How, how messed up was she from being identified as the American Kornikova and the... Right, starting as a teenager, she had a lot of pressure to perform and perform quickly to make them money. And I remember at my level, I faced that where they were sending me all over trying to make money off me and I was getting burned out. So it, she was much more in the spotlight, of course. And I think that by the time I met her, she had clarity on everything. She always has. She's she's not a confused person. She knows what she wants. She knows she can differentiate BS and and what's real in a place like LA from, you know, Flintstone, Georgia, Pebbles. And and she's very wise to it all. And she knew that I was genuine when I was with her. And I said, let's try and put money in your bank and let's have fun at it. Let's work hard. And I, I was very dedicated to her doing well. You know, I dropped everything, the little real estate I was doing to like go on tour with her and go say, you know, hey, this is my girlfriend. We're going we're gonna to play you. We were very out in the open because it was a little scandalous. Yeah, and I think that, you know, even like the way you're explaining it, like, I mean, I, I think people have a hard time not understanding it. I mean, you guys have such similar backgrounds in that you were to highly touted juniors with like parents that were committed to turning you pro. It makes it, it makes some sense. Yeah, we we both had the same focus, you know, very similar upbringing. We both have a lot of attention, a lot of pressure at the same time, and I think it's good to give pressure to kids because even if you're not successful, you still gone gone on this journey that's usually different than everyone else. So win, lose, or draw, you have something to talk about when you're older and bring some wisdom to your life that can help you in any career. Um, this is what we call our 10-ball scramble. We don't stay on any one subject. We just move quick. 10-ball scramble. Tosh Kent. Hot rooms and cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> shot clock. Oh, the shot clock that goes on now? Oh, I think that's good. I like the shot clock. Why? Because it keeps the, the tennis faster. On-court coaching. I like on-court coaching because you can mic up and you can make a difference in a match. I used to make a lot of differences with uh, when Ashley got that. Off-court coaching? No, I don't, th I don't believe in off-court coaching. I think that's a distraction for a player. Best of five set tennis. I think it's a true test of, of will and fight, five, three out of five sets. Love it. Love it. I think it's a true test. Prize money. Prize money's huge. I think it's doing well. I think prize money's way up, and that's great for the game. Appearance fees. I think appearance fees are justified to spread out the talent and make sure tournaments are successful. Yeah, I agree with appearance fees. Endorsements. I think endorsements should be better for the players who are 50 to 100 in the world because they're really the meat and potatoes of the tour. ATP. ATP, I think, took tennis to another level in the 1990s. They've changed the game for these players. WTA. WTA, I think, needs to continue to fight for the girls to be allowed um, better accommodations. And I think the WTA needs to fight for the girls on prize money and be more of an advocate for their well-being. USTA. 
I think the USTA has been in and out of success and failures over the years on different strategies, but I think overall they should they should continue to help these young players travel internationally and maybe also look to give more money to coaching and player development. I don't think they give enough compared to other countries. ITF. The ITF, which I think, you know, obviously controls the slams and Davis Cup. I think the slams are amazing. They're doing a great job. I think the Davis Cup is oversaturated. And I think that the, da- the Davis Cup holder, the winning country, I think should only play one match a year to defend the cup. I think the interest in Davis Cup is now really waning. And one of the reasons is Labor Cup with McEnroe and Borg is so exciting. I think Davis Cup would get its interest back if the cup holder, the winner, only played one match a year. And that's how it used to be. 80 years ago. You're saying give them a bye all the way to the back end. All the way. The, to the it, final. Right. It should be every two years like Ryder Cup at golf. They, if they mimic Ryder Cup at golf, you have a great event. The labor is Ryder Cup. Right. And that's almost taking over. So in order for Davis Cup to get their prestige back, it has to be less frequent. Okay, moving on. This is our final set. King of the court. If you were the king, how would you do it? Chucky, you were a player, you're married to a player, uh, you were a coach, you're an insider in a way that very uh, few people are. Um, Our producer, Scotty, and I, we're mesmerized by the fact that guys 32 to 37 are winning all the big tournaments, and the guys 20 years old to 29 years old, they can't win seven matches in two weeks. You're the king. How do you take a player and get them over that hump? First of all, do you agree? I mean, is it crazy that... It is. It, the, the fitness level of these 30-something-year-olds is extraordinary, and these the, the top four guys all have the money and the resources to keep this training at such a high level that a kid who's 20 in the world doesn't have that ability to hire such a team. So these guys are staying on top, and I think it's just a matter of time before Zarev, who's coached by Lendl, breaks through. But they need to get more fitter. These guys are weighing their food. If you're not weighing your food these days, you're not doing everything it takes. You really think that's it? I mean, Zarev's a great player, but he doesn't move around the court like Djokovic. He'll probably never beat Djokovic. I just think you have an era of amazing talents and Djokovic Federer and Nadal, like Sampras, Chang, Agassi, and some of those guys, Becker, Edberg at the time. But these guys are able to sustain it for so long, which is extraordinary. But we think that these guys don't have, the, the younger guys don't have the gumption to problem solve and get themselves through these matches. We, what's the story? I just think these guys, I think these high-level guys are all traveling with high-level teams, and it's a, it's a sports science now, and they're all, these are all the best trainers in the world, and if, you're, if your team is like a couple guys who are, were ex-players and the other team are like scientists, who's going to win? Chuck Adams, um, thank you as always. Um, this has been a lot of fun. I think... Uh, I think we really learned a lot, and uh, we appreciate your candid, you know, telling of all these stories. That was great. Uh, You are released. Thank you. (laughs) Huge thanks to Chucky Adams. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. 
the masterful Matt Degnan did our mix. I want to thank everyone for listening. We will be back next time with someone who I think is one of the freshest voices in tennis, Racket Magazine publisher Caitlin Thompson. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review us on the Apple Podcast. And tell your friends, thank you for listening. Ensure your shoulders, weigh your food, and until next time, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.